This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here, and welcome to this edition of Sunday Chops. This week, I have an excellent and very moving slice of history for you, which I need to give you some background for. So here goes. Yesterday, which was the 18th of February 2023, for those of you listening at another time, was the 80th anniversary of the arrest of two youngsters who have gone on to be iconic in Germany, but whose story is less well known in the UK. They were a brother and sister, Hans and Sophie Scholl, who were spotted distributing anti-war leaflets at the University of Munich. The Gestapo were called and soon discovered they had captured two members of the White Rose, a non-violent group of students and one professor, pledging to resisting the Nazis through a leafleting and graffiti campaign. Just four days later, Hans, who was 24, Sophie, who was 21, and another member of the group, Christoph Probst, who was 23, were executed by guillotine for high treason. It's an incredibly powerful and moving story, and I was lucky enough to grab some time with Dr Alexandra Lloyd, who runs the White Rose Project, based at the University of Oxford, to chat about what drove the group, their legacy in Germany, and why it's Sophie that has come to represent them in the public imagination. I hope you find this as interesting to listen to as it was to make. Until next time. Can we start with the White Rose Project, your project, and tell me a bit more about what it is that you do and how it is that you got involved in it? Sure, yeah. So I set up the White Rose Project in October 2018. And the sort of immediate impetus for that was really that um, it was the 75th anniversary of the White Rose trials and executions. And I'd been asked to give a talk on, there was a a very famous film version of the White Rose story in the early 2000s. And one of the things that I write about as an academic is film and memory. And so I had revisited the White Rose, you know, having heard about them, but not really necessarily known much more than, oh yeah, there were some students in Munich and they did some resisting and great, great story. And so I started reading their pamphlets, the resistance pamphlets that they had written. And I just thought they were the most incredible texts. And I kind of couldn't believe that I hadn't really read them Mm. before. And one of the things that I teach at Oxford is translation from German to English. And so I took the pamphlets along to a translation class and I showed them to my students and they were just so completely captivated by them and by the experience of translating them that I thought, well, wouldn't it be amazing to actually have an English version of these texts by students who are the same age Mm. as student members of the White Rose and also to have a translation that had been done collaboratively. So they translated them as a group. And so that was how it started. And it's just kind of we're now in year five. I've published two books on the White Rose by this point. We've done loads of activities for the public. We've worked with partners in Germany and also in the UK 
just to try and to bring this story to really a much wider audience. Yeah, because it's super well known in Germany, but it's just not it's not that well known in the UK. Agreed. I knew exactly what you knew. There were some students. They were executed. Yeah. And yes, not much else until I listened to Credit Where Credit's Due, until I listened to a podcast from The Rest is History in which they talked about it. Could we maybe start with a tiny bit of background on the, the Shoals as a family? Because they're actually quite an interesting family, full stop. For example... Their father had actually also been to prison. Yeah, absolutely. So the Shoals who are, you know, if you've heard of the White Rose, uh, you've heard of the Shoals, probably, and maybe not the others. Yeah, I mean, the Shoals had a kind of largely untroubled upbringing. I mean, it wasn't without its troubles, but, you know, it was a very loving family. I think that the children were were kind of hugely encouraged to pursue their interests. And they were very interested in art and culture. You know, they read a lot, they discussed a lot and were were hugely well supported by their parents in doing that. I think, you know, we, we say they had a kind of liberal Christian upbringing. They were Lutherans and they were liberal, I think, in the sense that, you know, their father was opposed to Nazism. And so his attitude really was that, you know, his children should make up their own minds, which is how the Scholls, I mean, how Hans Scholl and Sophie Scholl ended up joining the Hitler Youth, which, you know, their father certainly wouldn't have approved of. But that was, you know, he was a, a true liberal. He allowed them to to kind of go and try it and, and work it out for themselves, which, of course, they did to the extent that they then, you know, came out right out the other side. So um, Robert Scholl was imprisoned, certainly in 1942, when Hans Scholl was on the Eastern Front. Um, so he he was a conscripted medic. So he, in his university vacation, he was over in on the Eastern Front with a couple of other members of the White Rose. Yeah, it's it's really hard. <laughs> but when you put all this together, you think, gosh, yeah, crikey, he was on the Eastern Front mm. in 1942. This is really impressive, not in a good way, but it's just very hard to kind of put all that together. But, you know, while he was there, his father was back in Germany in prison for for making a critical remark against Hitler. And so that example, you know, the example of someone of their own father who wasn't afraid mm. to say things how they were, I think must have made a, a tremendous impression on them. Now, Sophie's the only female member of the White Rose. Does that tell us more about her or more about just the 1940s? I think I would nuance that slightly. So Sophie was the only member of the core group. So the, the the interesting thing for me about the White Rose is that there's this core group of six resistors, but it rippled out. So there were a lot of people, a lot of students and a lot of other individuals who were kind of involved in at the periphery or involved in supporting it in different ways. Sophie was the only member of that core six to be a woman she's also the only woman who is executed as part of the white rose but there were there were other women who were involved in it and who received prison sentences but sophie's certainly at the heart of it clearly in the context of the 1940s i mean university education Mm. was not really something that women were supposed to pursue this is partly to do with of course the gender politics of nazism and it's also partly to do with the fact that in wartime what should women be doing Mm. not pursuing education and also kind of education that has no that has no real world applicability i'm in the humanities i have to make this argument a lot (laughs) but you know sophie was studying philosophy and biology as a 21 year old in right in the middle of world war ii so there really were not, you know, there were expectations around what women should be and do. And, you know, to be a, a young woman at university in that period 
I think was, you know, incredibly challenging and it and in itself a sort of dissident act. Mm, yeah. It was a way of asserting one's position. Yeah. One of the finest lines, I think, in the world is the line between something that's really brave and something that's really foolhardy. And I want to start with talking about the the, the brave side of this, because, I mean, we could argue all day whether, you know, groups like Antifa are actually fighting fascism. But these guys were actively fighting actual fascists. It's It's such a brave act. To paint down with Hitler on a wall in Germany in the 1940s blows my mind but part of me wonders whether it's a sort of bravery that only the really young can have where do you place them on that scale of of bravery so this is a great question because this is something you know I've, i've worked on the white rose for for five years now and every year i work with a group of students you know who are kind of 19 20 21 and this always comes up this question of you know why did they do what they did how is it that they could could see all of this and act on it and so many others couldn't and then is what they did brave or is it crazy Mm. you know how much did they understand truly the consequences of their actions and if they had truly understood what the potential consequences were could they have done it and so it's great for me talking to 21 year olds Mm. about how they see that especially because they too are in a university context. You know, we can we can do a thought experiment about, okay, so what if you went to the central building in your university yeah. and you did something like this? What would that be like? I guess that the answer, the answer to that in a way is a couple of members of that core group, they were parents. So Christoph Paulbst was 23. He had three children. He'd married very young and his um, youngest child had in fact only been born kind of couple of weeks before the arrests. Wow. So he was a a father and a husband. Mm. He had responsibilities. And also Professor Kurt Huber was, you know, he was older. He was 49, um, which, of course, my students think is ancient. (laughs) It's exactly how old I am. (laughs) He was older than them. And he had two children. He had a wife. You know, he had a university job. So I think there is a sense in which, yeah, that there's absolutely the sort of the confidence of youth in there somewhere. But I think they weren't unaware of the potential consequences. Mm. Another thing I would probably say in relation to Sophie Scholl and also Hans Scholl and Kristoff is that you know, they were arrested, well, Hans and Sophie were arrested on a Thursday, Christoph on the Saturday, all three were on trial on Monday morning. And by quarter past five on mo- that Monday evening, they'd all been executed. So it's incredibly quick between them being caught and actually it all being over yeah. for them. There were further trials, there were further arrests, there were further prison sentences. But but those first three to be put on trial, you know, that was, you know, how do you get your head around any of that yeah. in, you know, in that in that very short space of time in prison, you know, knowing that you're leaving people behind. So there's also that I think there's also kind of the speed with which it happens, mm. and also the the context of war. You know, they were studying university, but all of the all of the men. Well, the student men in, involved in the White Rose were were conscripted, so they were spending their university vacations in France or in Russia. Sophie's boyfriend, yeah, was also on the Eastern Front. He was, yeah, he was airlifted out of Stalingrad, which is 
Yeah. yeah. Again, wow. completely astonishing to think about. Fitz Hartnagel, yeah. He and Sophie had sort of started a relationship. There's a, a beautiful collection of their letters to each other, um, many of which have just, just don't exist in English translation or don't exist yet. <laughs> yes, I was waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, that you know, it's a really beautiful exchange of, of ideas and of, you know, working stuff out. I mean, Sophie met him when she was 16. They corresponded throughout that period until short, very shortly, you know, sort of the day before before she died. So she was very aware of, you know, what it meant for him being at the front. And he wasn't conscripted. He was a kind of career soldier. Let's talk about these leaflets. Yes. They go for the Nazis with a white hot ferocity that is is really, really staggering to read. I mean, I've got a couple of quotes and they're all from the second one. They call what's happening to the Jews. And this is 1942 they're writing this. They call what's happening to the Jews the most frightful crime against human dignity, a crime unparalleled in the whole of history. They call Nazism a cancerous growth on the country. They even have a go at Hitler's writing style and Hitler's ability to speak to speak <laughs> German. It's incredible. Yeah. Your book, Defying Hitler, which I have here, which is a great read, it's, it's all there. It's so powerful. In context, how vicious or how forthright is this compared to other things that were happening within the country at the time? Because they're trying to inspire people to join them, aren't they? Every year we do this project, you know, the first year we translated the leaflets, but every year since we've read the leaflets together and we've talked about them. It's amazing, really. You know, they are not holding back at all. And one of the questions that we always kind of ask when the students and I read the the pamphlets is, you know, who are they talking to? What do they think they're going to achieve? Did they achieve it? So if I ever go and talk to secondary school age kids about the pamphlets, they always sort of pretty much ask, what, why did they write so much? You know, why didn't they write, you know, like a, a Twitter length slogan? Yeah. You know, wouldn't that have been more inspiring? And I think the answer to that, well, there are a lot of answers to that. But one is that, you know, they are trying to write resistance. They're trying to use the power of writing and the power of rhetoric to convince people that they've got to do something. One of the most frequent calls in the pamphlets is for Germans to open their eyes, acknowledge what's going on, stop conveniently ignoring it. And they're not, the pamphlets are not an easy read, actually. Um, The English translation is great. The students did such a beautiful job. But, you know, they're not the easiest thing to read. And if you think they were going, they were arriving in people's post boxes, you know, and people were opening them, reading them and being confronted with this, yeah, really angry, burning rhetoric and things that also, you know, it was illegal to say. Mm. You couldn't criticise Hitler publicly. You would go to prison. And here it is in black and white, you know, typed up on a piece of paper and posted in an envelope and kind of reaching people. So they are, they're absolutely incredible texts and and they are saying things that are not being said publicly within Germany in that period. They have an interesting combination of driving forces. I mean obviously a revulsion of what's happening to Germany, what's happening outside of Germany, what Germany's doing. There's also a lot of class consciousness in there in the way they're writing. There's also a lot of religious motivation and impetus, which is something that I think you wouldn't find necessarily 
amongst young people in an activism group today. I mean, they were Lutherans, weren't they? But they're in Munich, which is a Catholic city. So I wonder if you could speak a little about sort of how that, what the role their faith played in their work. Yes, absolutely. So it's interesting because sometimes in the reception of the White Rose, we see almost a dichotomy between them as being kind of morally and religiously motivated over here and over there as being politically motivated. Mm. So those two things are totally indistinguishable. But also, if we say that they're motivated by religion, are we saying that they're not political? Because I defy anyone to read the pamphlets and Mm. say that they're not political. That is a really interesting kind of fusion of of politics and this kind of religiously motivated desire to make people see injustice and do something about it. So it comes, I think, from a place of of kind of deep and genuine compassion for others and for life. It's also interesting. So so Hans and Sophie Scholl were Lutherans. Willy Graf and Kurt Hubel were, were Roman Catholics. And Alexander Schmorell was... Uh, Russian Orthodox. So actually within the core group, you know, they're quite kind of interdenominational within the Christian faith. Their faith was, was, I think, tremendously important to them. That's very clear from their writings, from their letters and their diaries. Most of them speak very movingly about their faith. They're very alive to it Mm -hmm. in different ways. Christoph Paulbst was baptised, became Catholic in prison, um, about 45 minutes before he was executed. So so faith plays a huge role in, in what they do. And I think it also plays an important role in kind of how they come together. Mm. So I think that they, you know, that they experience, you know, they all came from different faith traditions within Christianity. And so there was there was a lot about the White Rose that was about exchanging ideas and discussing and discovering things about other people. I think they were genuinely interested in... Mm people's experience yeah and so that brings them together in that way too I mean I was raised a Catholic but I I have no faith now but I can see how having faith made what came next for them probably easier so let's talk about how they were caught and I think for me this story is where they crossed the line from brave into foolhardy. It seems to me that they didn't need to be caught. So I do wonder the question of, in order to make their point, perhaps they had to be martyrs, perhaps they had to be caught. I I don't know how you feel about that. Could you tell us a little bit about the incident in which they were caught? On the 18th of February, 1943. So that was a Thursday. The reason I always say the day is that I think it's just so powerful. Yeah. To think of it like, like, oh, today's Thursday. Like, imagine if I got up this morning and went and did this. Yeah, I can leave washing up for that long. Yeah, right? <laughs> so Thursday, the 18th of February, 1943, um, Hans and Sophie Scholl get up. They live in a flat in Munich. They get up and they take a suitcase and a briefcase that are full of copies of the pamphlets. They walk, it takes about 15 minutes, I think, to get to the university and they have a plan. They have a plan which they've discussed with a couple of the others the day before. And the plan is that they're going to leave copies of the pamphlets in the main university building. And they're going to kind of, they've timed it so that loads of students, all the students are in their 
lectures, they're in the teaching rooms. Hans and Sophie are going to leave all these copies of the leaflets. And then as the lectures end, all the students will start streaming out of the classrooms and out of the lecture halls. And Hans and Sophie will just disappear into the crowd and they'll get away with it. And no one will know it was them. They'll just know that there are now leaflets and pamphlets in the university. And unfortunately, for reasons that are, are kind of lost to history, Sophie Scholl decided she saw one of these piles of pamphlets that they'd left and she pushed the pile over the kind of balcony and they cascaded down into the large hall below. So, you know, in a way, it's this really iconic image, mm. leaflets fluttering down of, the you know, these words of resistance. And unfortunately, in doing that, she was seen by the university caretaker who was in the building at the time. He apprehended her and Hans. The Gestapo were called and Hans and Sophie were arrested and taken away to the Gestapo prison and interrogated. So if she hadn't pushed the pamphlets, if they hadn't gone to the university, the other sort of tragic part about that story is that um, Hans Scholl had on him a draft of what would have been the seventh pamphlet, and that had been written by Christoph Horbst. It was then discovered that Christoph was also part of this resistance, and so he too was arrested. And that was why he ended up on trial with the Scholls on the Monday. So again, you, you think, well, crikey, if you're going to your university to leave out these you know, highly inflammatory, illegal pamphlets, maybe don't have the draft, maybe just leave it at home or don't have it on you. And I think one of the, you know, I talk to my students a lot about this kind of thing and you know, this kind of aspect of the story. And yes, in a way, yeah, that's really daft. But in another way, it's very human. Mm, absolutely. And it's, you know, part of what's inspiring about this story, I think, is that they're real people. You know, they're not kind of untouchable and perfect. This perfect action, you know, what they do is difficult, we know their names because mm, what yeah. they did was was something that no one else was but i agree with you it is a it's a fine line i think you know one of the one of the questions about the white rose is how much impact did they have you know the war didn't end in 1942 1943 it kept going there wasn't large scale german resistance to nazism you know, at all, or certainly not as a result of the White Rose pamphlets. So I think one of the things that happens with the White Rose is that they become really important after. Yeah. So it matters that they did it, even if at the time they didn't make, you know, they didn't succeed in the sense that the things that they were telling people to do in the pamphlets, people didn't go yeah. out and do. Yeah. It was an impossible dream rise up together but it's so wonderfully idealistic I find it just really moving when they were caught were they what the Gestapo were expecting to catch did they have any idea who were responsible before well so it's always difficult working off Gestapo uh, records yeah. because obviously they're Gestapo records but the Gestapo had uh, set up a commission to investigate the pamphlets Partly because, I mean, the first four came out within two weeks in the summer of 1942, and then they stopped. And the reason they stopped was because Alex Morell, Hans Scholl and Willy Graf went off to the Eastern Front for three months. So when they come back, that's when the leaflets start again. 
So the Gestapo had sort of, you know, they'd got these four pamphlets coming out in the summer of 42 in Munich, or, or not just in Munich, in all sorts of places. And so they they commissioned an investigation into that. One of the things they did really early in 1943 was they um, commissioned a professor at the university where Kurt Huber was, and they got him to do an analysis of a couple of the pamphlets. And so the idea was it's like a crime drama. He would read the pamphlets and he would do an analysis of them. And as a result of that, they would have a really good idea about who the author was. Right. Which is already interesting because there is no one single author of the six pamphlets. They have different authors. But they were kind of convinced that there was one author. And so, yeah, so we have this kind of weird academic analysis of the pamphlet saying, you know, well, I think the author was probably like this or like this, you know, clearly very educated, clearly know their German literature. The Gestapo were investigating it, definitely. I think the interrogator of Sophie Scholl probably did not expect this sort of, you know, very intelligent 21-year-old woman who was clearly at the heart of this. And I think he, you know, he tried, well, probably tried quite hard to give her an out. She wouldn't take it, would she? She was part of a group. She loved her brother Hans very much. She admired him very much. You know, she was part of this. One of the reasons, we think one of the reasons why she was, you know, went to the university to distribute the pamphlets was precisely because she was a woman. You know, she's far less likely to get searched when she's got pamphlets on her. And so, yeah, so she, you know, she, I think, saw herself as as part of this group. And it would have been wrong, yeah, you know, for her to walk away when, when none of the others did. And absolutely, the idea that because she was a woman that she had been some way sort of made to do this or had the wool over eyes. It seems to me that it would be as offensive to her as a 21-year-old as it probably would have been to both you and I as a 21-year-old to, uh, <laughs> to to play the woman card, to play the, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing, they make me do it card. Yeah. Exactly. When she was taken to trial, she left a piece of paper on her bed, just wrote the word freedom. Yeah. It's such a wonderfully moving, such a wonderfully cinematic also story, just a real sense of... Like, Mm. I've made my decision, the die is cast and I'm going to do it in the most dignified way possible. Yeah, there's a a nice quote from, again, we have to be kind of careful with the Gestapo interrogation Mm. transcript. But there is a there is a quote from that where she, you know, she's asked, does she think that what she and Hans have done is a crime? You know, are they are they being disloyal to the troops at the front, Mm. for example? Of course, you know. That's a question that's going to really bite, given that her, you know, her romantic friend, Fritz Hartnog, is currently, you know, in Stalingrad. She's asked this question and she says, I remain of the opinion that I did the best I could for my people. I therefore have no regrets about my conduct and accept the consequences that will arise from my conduct. You know, she's incredibly clear and straightforward and unapologetic. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. Can we talk a bit about her her legacy? Because... As you say, she did. they didn't have the instant reaction that they thought they would have. But in recent years, I picked these ones out because these ones were things that were actually voted for by the public. And therefore, I think that actually that tells you something. 
She was voted the greatest German woman of the 20th century by a women's magazine in Germany. We did a similar thing here, like the greatest Britain they had. Mm -hmm. I think Churchill won here. The, The greatest German television series in Germany, again voted for by the public. Her and Hans were joint fourth together. I mean, there are statues, there are memorials, there are streets named after them, there are, there are all sorts. It would be easy to, to, to maybe discount quite a lot of that on the fact that there weren't necessarily a lot of heroic Germans in that period. But I also think within that, undoubtedly, they deserve the legacy that they have. So how, how do you feel about that sort of that, that dichotomy? The... Oi, it's super complicated, the way that this reception of the White Rose works because I think it's partly to do with the fact that you know the White Rose was already being commemorated in 1943 so Thomas Mann who was in exile in the States you know he he was broadcasting in Germany to Germany to Germans on the BBC German service he mentions the Shoals in a broadcast so they're kind of already being commemorated in this very public way in in 43. She was she was a big Thomas Mann fan wasn't she? She was a big Thomas Mann fan yeah. So that reception started really early. And then obviously Germany is divided after the war. So there's kind of, you know, the White Rose plays a different role in East Germany and West Germany. There's also the fact that, you know, in order for these for these individuals to be publicly commemorated, you have to have advocates for that. Right. So you have to have family members Mm. who are advocating for that, who are talking about them, reminding people about them you know, preserving their legacy. I think, I mean, I've written a little bit about Sophie Scholl, you know, the sort of iconicity of Sophie Scholl and and why is it that, that she sort of becomes the figurehead of this movement? Mm. I think most or a lot of English language books about the White Rose are Sophie Scholl and the White Rose. Right. So she does, she has really become iconic for this group and also I think in some ways for the German kind of, peaceful resistance and it's difficult right because as a woman I think that's great because there there weren't a lot of women in the German resistance Mm. to fascism but there were many more than we talk about and many more than we commemorate and whose names we know but it also becomes really tricky because in a sense we reduce her to this myth and we neglect we neglect that there were other women in the white rose or we neglect that the white rose was a collaboration between lots of people so it's a really fine line you know we want people to talk about Sophie Scholl of course we do she's hugely important incredible and inspiring person but I think you know what I always try and come back to is okay but what did she say yeah as well as what did she do because you know we end up with these kind of iconic women like you know like Anne Frank or like Joan of Arc like Sophie Scholl where they become figures that that are silent Mm. I completely agree. They become they become um, almost this blank slate on which everybody yeah. projects modern yeah. concerns onto them. And I mean, I've yeah. done it a bit now. We've talked about feminism or I've talked about Antifa, like modern ideas you talk about in connection with someone and the real them becomes lost and they are essentially a statue. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, right? So I think Sophie Scholl would herself from everything I've I've read of her, by her, about her, you know, I think she wouldn't she wouldn't really be down with that. You know, I think she wouldn't want to be the one who is singly commemorated and remembered. It always seems to come back to this question of these resistors, Sophie Scholl and the White Rose resistors, are extraordinary. Yeah. We know their names. 
because they resisted mm. and they were caught and executed. We only know who they are because they did something extraordinary. But we have to kind of balance that with a with an appreciation that they were also real people. Yeah. I think they're not, you know, we always have this discussion with the students about, are they ordinary? Are they ordinary people? Well, clearly they're not ordinary because they did the things that yeah. they did. But they were real. They didn't always get everything right. They had flaws. They liked to have fun and do fun things mm. and, you know, go to the pub or you know share a bottle of wine they like to read poetry they liked to be in the choir or they they did all this kind of stuff which you know certainly within a university context you know it's just it's just life yeah it's very recognizable yeah that becomes inspiring that they're not that they're not these mythical creatures yeah, who they're not superheroes yeah no exactly yeah. Now, you've written a couple of books. I have one here, Defying Hitler, The White Rose Pamphlet, which is uh, an excellent read. Where can people find out more about The White Rose, about Sophie Scholl, if they're interested? So we have a website for the project, um, which is a long, complicated university website. (laughs) Of course it is. If people search White Rose Project Oxford, they will find us. Brilliant. But yeah, the Defying Hitler is a is a great kind of introduction to the group for for people who maybe know the names, um, but know much more than that. Thank you so much for being here to talk to us. This has been brilliant. Thank you for having me. Standard issue for all women.